I just figured like um, if I could only get one future technology, um, I could get the longevity one and then for I'd live long enough to see the other ones. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Welcome to LSEIQ. I'm Sue Windybank and this is the podcast where we ask social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question. This episode is dedicated to David Graeber, LSE Professor of Anthropology, who died unexpectedly in September this year. David was a public intellectual, a best-selling author, an influential activist and anarchist. He took aim at the pointless bureaucracy of modern life memorably coining the term bullshit jobs, and his book, Debt, The First 5,000 Years, was turned into a radio series by the BBC. But David started his academic career studying Madagascar. Anthropology interested him, he said, because he was interested in human possibilities, including the potential of societies to organise themselves without the need for a state, as he had seen in his own research. He was also a well-known anti-globalisation activist and a leading figure in the Occupy Wall Street movement. David was generous enough to do an interview for us in 2016, when LSEIQ was in its infancy. That episode asked, what's the future of work? And in his interview, he reflected on the disappointments of technology, pointless jobs and caring labour. David was such an interesting speaker that we would have liked to have used more of it at the time, but we didn't have the space. Now it feels right to bring you a lightly edited version of the interview. David didn't get the longevity technology that he wished for in the clip that we played at the start of this podcast, but his ideas live on. In, in your book, mm. The Utopia of Rules, you talk about being eight years old at the time of the Apollo moon landing. Yeah. And the optimism um, that the of the future that that engendered. What would an eight-year-old David Graeber be most disappointed about what technology has delivered in 2016? Well, I mean, what wouldn't I be disappointed in? Um, if you look around, I mean, I was I remember thinking I'll be 39 in in the year 2000 or 40 in 2001. That seems so old. But I mean, when we saw movies like 2001, of course, we assumed that was more or less what things would be like. Um, so. I think the greatest disappointment was the fact that, like, you know, we got to the moon and we stopped and go anyplace else. We were assuming there were going to be colonies on Mars by now, you know, um, that we would have the ourselves the ability to do space travel recreationally, but all sorts of other things. I mean, we didn't know what sort of things would be invented. There was this kind of checklist. Of, it's, it's funny how that is because we actually already know, have a list. Anybody who reads or watches science fiction of the kind of things that should have been invented, you know, like anti-gravity devices, tractor beams, teleportation, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I don't think any of us thought that we'd get all of them in our lifetimes, but it never occurred to us that we wouldn't get any of them. And, and I think maybe one of the things that might have been the most disappointing was computers, because on the one hand, that's the thing which we supposed that was our compensation. Well, we got the internet, we got computers, isn't that great? But if you think about it, you know, what's what's the internet? It's this, it's this kind of combination of a giant post office, mail order catalog, and, and library, which is cool, you know, it's great. But, you know, we were all expecting how, you know, robots you could talk to, have a conversation, send off to do your laundry and walk the dog. And, you know, we don't have any of that stuff. 
I think that's really interesting because I think most people think we're in an era of massive technological progress. But you say that technological progress sort of slowed or even ended in the 1970s. Yeah, well, people often use the kitchen test. You know, if you look at the history of, say, 1750 to 1950, every generation, there were like new kitchen appliances that no one had thought of before, massive labor-saving devices, you know, whether it's dishwashers or electric ovens. or uh, The last we had is a microwave, which is a product of the 50s, but only really disseminated in the 70s. But um, since then, there's been nothing. There's been no new addition to kitchen technology. And you could go on to that on every level, you know, new power sources, new um, new scientific models. You know, there used to be things like, imagine like genetics, quantum theory, all these sort of fundamental breakthroughs. Um, and again, we don't have any sort of new fundamental shifts of scientific paradigms that have actual technological effects. And in terms of the technologies that have come to fruition, you see many of them as ways to subjugate us or keep mm. us under surveillance rather than truly improve our lives? Well, think about information technology. You know, it has this incredible potential for human liberation, but a large part of what it's been used for is to keep tabs on people. I mean, it's true that it hasn't, they've, it's not that good. Um, I will say that some of the some of the paranoia that people have about, you know, the NSA is watching us all the time, they know everything about us, doesn't seem to be reflected by reality. I was involved in setting up Occupy Wall Street, and a couple of years later, it seems like they kind of came after people they thought of as ringleaders. And I know a lot of people who were evicted from their homes, had their taxes audited, and all sorts of, you know, sort of harassment kind of stuff happening. But then I noticed a pattern that the people that they um, actually went after were people who'd either been mentioned in the New York Times or in major magazines. And the people kept a low profile, nothing happened to them. So it's like, wait a minute. So like, they have 17 different intelligence agencies, and they still only know what they read in the papers. So I don't know how good it is. But nonetheless, that's where the investment has gone. There was a profound shift. People talk about this historically. Around the end of the 60s, early 70s, um, it was almost as if the moon landing, the definitive victory of, of the U.S. in the space race, set, you know, sort of kept allowed people to feel, all right, we won that battle. We don't really need all this space age stuff. Because the space age stuff was really more the Russians. Um, they're the ones who started it with Sputnik and the first uh, um, Yuri Gagarin and all of that sort of thing. Uh, that was their obsession. I mean, we now think of the Russians or the Soviet Union as being these boring bureaucrats, but actually they had crazy dreams. And uh, if you look at what they were thinking, there's all these groups like the biocosmic immortalists. They were trying to figure out a way to bring back the dead. That's what Lenin's tomb is all about. They were achieve immortality for the proletariat. And of course, once we have immortality, we're going to do all the people. We have to put them on Mars into space program. So they were thinking crazy stuff. Um, and the Americans were just trying to show anything you can do, we can do better. But once, once that's why people have said, you know, the Apollo moon landing is the greatest historical achievement of Soviet communism. Uh, but, um, you know, once the U.S. had proved that, there seemed to be a kind of a moment of panic about the dangers, especially of automation. I know somebody, a friend named Wynne McCormick, um, publisher who at the time, in a very sort of upper class background, he was at, I can't remember if it was Harvard or um, one of those places like that, involved in this think tank of sort of members of the elite talking about what are we going to do when, when the robots replace all the workers. There seemed to be a sense of panic. He said everybody was discussing that at the time. Uh, 
and not only people on the left, like the Situationists and the Yippies, were all you know, sort of slogan, let the machines do all the work that everybody was saying at the, uh, in the late 60s. But you know, it affected people who were actually running things. They were like, oh my God, if the hippies are bad now, what's going to happen when the entire working class turns into hippies? Oh my God, it's going to be a disaster. And then there was this very kind of... Um, very interesting sort of anti-feminist backlash. It was very early days of feminism, but they were already kind of predicting the emergence of people like Shulamith Firestone before she actually had written anything. It's like, what's going to happen to motherhood? It's all going to be test two babies. They're going to get rid of the family. They're going to get, you know, basically patriarchy will be destroyed by technology. And so people were talking about this. And a lot of those people were the people who made decisions about investment because most investment in scientific research is still coming from the government, or if not from these NGO boards, which are the same kind of people on them. People talk about it's a conspiracy theory to think the direction of technology is shaped by people sitting around in rooms, but, but it is. I mean, there are people sitting around, you could figure out their names and you know, find out where the room is. Uh, it's a lot of it's very public if you if you know where to look for it. Um, so these people were sitting around saying, "Okay, what are we going to do? Uh, we don't really need the space age stuff, and the robotic stuff is scary." Um, people were publishing books like Future Shock, explicitly saying this: all the problems of the '60s are due to too rapid technology. Um, so at the, around that time, you can see a shift of investment first by the government. Um, also, a lot of research is funded by these sort of NGOs in between the corporate sector and government, which sort of directed money towards information technology, medical technology, and of course, military technology. It had always been in there and continued. Um, so all the robotic stuff that we have now, I think someone told me that 95% of all robotics research in the US is funded through the military, which explains why we don't have robots that you know can walk your dog or do your laundry for you, but we do have drones that can blow people up. Um, on the other hand, the information technology has a curious history because a lot of it comes out of the military, um, like the internet, and it, it has a lot of very liberatory potential, as we all know. But there was always the uh, sort of purpose of sort of marshalling it back, and a lot of what it's actually been used for is essentially on-the-job surveillance to monitor people. So that whereas it was thought that technology would make people work less, it seems now that a lot of this technology has been ultimately deployed to make sure we're all working more and more, even as often there's less and less to do. Can I just get you to talk a bit more about that? I mean, okay. what does that actually look like, this mm. idea of kind of technology making us work more rather mm. than less? I mean, we want the 15-hour Keynes week, don't we? Yeah, well, I mean, I think any, I, I think some people don't because they're afraid to go home because they hate their families. I think a lot of people really like their jobs just because it's a chance that, you know, only other place they have to go. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I noticed that. They did, they did this um, poll about, uh, based on my essay on bullshit jobs, um, I asked, well, do you think that your job makes any meaningful contribution to the world? And I think 39% um, said definitely not. 11% weren't sure. Um, but what I thought was really interesting was the fact that a, when they asked people, do, do you get satisfaction from your job? Um, the number was higher than, than what would it have been? Um, you know, the, the number of people who were unsatisfied was smaller than the number of people who thought their job didn't do anything, which meant there are a significant number of people who think that their job is completely useless, but like it anyway. So the only possible explanation is like, you know, the, the alternative is so bleak. You know, they just don't want to go home. They like their coworkers. It's better to do something than nothing.
Do you, I mean, do you question that idea that there is meaning in work? Well, I mean, I think there's a difference between meaning and purpose, you know. Um, I think that we have a society where if there is meaning in work, it's almost considered, how to put this, um, you should be paid less if your work is meaningful. There's a very strong notion that if there is meaning in work, that is a reward in itself, and therefore um, you shouldn't go whining about your you know, lack of wages or benefits. Um, I've heard people say this in a lot of corporations, that if there is a task which anybody would possibly do for any reason other than money, they don't feel they should really have to pay for it. If it's artistic, if it's you know even translation work, anything that's sort of interesting in some way. Um, there must be some way we can get people to do that for free. Meanwhile, they'll pay people lots of money to do this completely useless stuff, like writing these endless reports, which then get circulated to committees, which write other reports and so forth and so on, that I call the bullshit job phenomena. Um, my personal take on this, I think it has to do with the decline of the 19th century labor theory of value. Um, this is what I'm working on, actually, in my book on the topic. It's going to be a little book, but I, um, I, I think that it's important to point these things out. If you read speeches by politicians in the 19th century, I remember looking at some speeches by Abraham Lincoln. You know, and you look at it now, these guys sound like Marxists. They're always talking about labor and capital and how, uh, and, and, and how capital is derived from labor. And um, nobody talks like that anymore. Uh, there was a notion in the 19th century that productive work is what creates value. And, and you know, I remember reading somewhere that... Um, in the 1880s, one-third of all French factory workers had read at least one volume of Marx's Capital. Nowadays, you can't get graduate students to read the damn thing. Um, so people, you know, they, had, they were dedicated to this stuff, and they really internalized it. And, and, and so people really thought that, you know, work is what produces value. It's, 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 uh, work, productive labor is the basis of everything. The problem with that is it's a kind of a real masculine sort of patriarchal gender bias based on all this, because they thought of work as essentially factory work or craft, you know, smiths banging out things on the forge or um, craftspeople and, and caring labor and maintenance labor and all that kind of work that actually keeps society running. Even a lot of male laborers actually, you know, working class people are not mostly producing things or maintaining things. The idea of a caretaker. They're, they're keeping things the same, they're cleaning them, moving them around. But the idea of labor focused so much on production, making things. I think that's, that's a key mistake. So most labor is actually keeping things the same rather than making them. But they had this idea of like male productive labor and factories and so forth as being the real essence of, of, of what labor is. And that made it easy for the other side to eventually have a counteroffensive. And again, this is, this is something you can document. People like Andrew Carnegie and his idea of the gospel of wealth said, we need to turn this around. You know, we need to, people are getting their sense of valuation and life from their work and what they produce. Um, this plays into the hands of people who devalue people like me, capitalists. Um, we need to change this around. You know, production has really come more than anything comes from the genius of the what we now call wealth producers, right, or, or job uh, producers, or all those phrases they use. Um, that all comes out of this. Is the eighteen nineties and early nineteen hundreds. They start putting out this line that's saying, "No, no, it is the minds of entrepreneurs that really create production, and you're just a bunch of robots, you know, sort of doing the job. Uh, anybody could do it. Uh, maybe someday a machine will, but uh, you might as well be a machine, you know." Um, 
this, this idea of factory labor made it easy because it's the most brainless type of labor there is, right? And that became the paradigm for labor. And though it's caregiving labor, of course, involves lots of thought. It's, you can never put it into that kind of a paradigm. But as a result, they came up with this new idea. Well, all right, um, labor is just carrying out like a machine what these brilliant minds have, have come up with. Um, well, then the question is, well, what's the value of labor then? Why do you tell people they should do it at all other than that they have to? So, so then the notion becomes, well, labor is a value in itself, which is an old Puritan idea that you can revive and, and bring to bear on the problem. You know, if you're not working harder than you'd probably like to be working on something that you don't really enjoy very much, well, if you're not doing that, you're a bad person, you're a parasite, you know, um, you're le leeching off everybody else who is doing that. So labor itself becomes a form of self-discipline, it's how you become an adult, it's, um, and it's, it's also a form of self-abnegation. Now, once you got that idea, of course, and this is where it gets really perverse, I think, um, anything that you get out of the work, anything that's pleasant about the work actually makes it less self-abnegation, less self-discipline, and, and less moral and virtuous. Um, and, you know, so if you're doing plush, easy, fun work, well, you know, that's not as valuable. But ultimately, I think at this point, it's got to the point where even if you get the pleasure of knowing that you're doing good in the world in some way by doing the work, it's worth less than if you were if it's a completely pointless, miserable job. So, and, and if you look at it, you know, that's what we end up having. I mean, with a few notable exceptions like doctors or pilots, you know, generally speaking, the more your work actually helps other people, the less you get paid for it. And people think that's right. You've talked about how capitalism actually holds back technological progress. Hmm. I think it does now. I mean, it's a good question whether um, capitalism used to propel technological progress and it has changed its form now, um, or whether it's to some degree an independent variable. And, you know, I, um, I don't know for sure, but I do know that you know the period of, say, the Industrial Revolution to the 50s, there was a steady stream of technological development and it starts stagnating. Some people say it's really started stagnating in the 40s and 50s. Um, the last period we have major breakthroughs. They said the last real big breakthroughs where I think, so let me see the laser, the microwave, and the pill. We haven't seen you know, sort of fundamental transformative technologies of that sort since. But it took a while for us to figure that out because um, in a lot, of, a lot of the period of the 60s and 70s, even 80s, was applying technologies that had already existed but hadn't really put to consumer purposes. My favorite example is the video phone. Um, that's the only technology that in the movie 2001 that we actually got by 2001, or roughly. And um, so I kind of looked into the history of it. And do you know when the video phone was actually invented or first deployed? It was first um, used by the Nazi post office in the 1930s. They debuted these video phones that they come up with. And then, of course, the war started and they got distracted on other things. Um, yeah, it's a 30s technology. Um, they knew how to do it in the 50s and 60s. They just couldn't find anybody who actually wanted one. Because, you know, who wants to have people look at the way you look when you just get out of bed in the morning? Problem I had this morning. I just got out of bed. Somebody called on Skype. I was like, <laughs> in previous hours, they just wouldn't have done, didn't want video phones for that reason, and um, so um, yeah, so 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 they were deploying things they already knew um, one by one until they kind of ran out. Um, so I, yeah, and I remember having this realization about this when I was watching um, a movie. Oh, it was, it was 
one of those bad Star Wars prequels, the first three, I can't remember which. I remember watching it and thinking, wow, you know, a terrible movie, but those are really good special effects. I mean, thinking, remember those bad 50s movies with the sort of monsters pulled on strings? And, uh, you know, I mean, if those guys could see this, I bet they'd be really impressed. And I thought, no, they wouldn't, because... They thought we'd actually be doing this stuff by now. All we've done is come up with amazing ways to simulate it. So question is, why do we have these technologies of simulation which have overtaken the actual, you know, sort of space age technologies people thought would happen? And it seems to me that it has a lot to do with the financialization of capitalism, the particular form of capitalism that we have, which seems to thrive on an idea that, well, in the, the main... This is a sign, perhaps, that a system has matured and is coming to its latter days. Change itself seems like a threat. Um, neoliberal capitalism, they call it, which sort of corresponds to the period of financialization since the 70s and especially the 80s, has been a form of capitalism which I think has always prioritized the ideological over the practical. And whenever there's a choice between sort of making capitalism seem like the only possible viable system and doing something else that would make capitalism actually be a more viable system. They always choose the former. They always prioritize the political and the ideology over the economic. Um, as a result, you know, we have the system as, I mean, a situation where the system's falling apart, but everybody's sitting there saying, but it can't fall apart. It's the only thing that could possibly exist. You know? uh, so, so I think capitalism has become very, very conservative in this particular manifestation. Uh, any idea of profound change is a threat because the entire defense of the system is based on the fact that idea that you know, any nothing else would really be possible, or you know, maybe North Korea is the only alternative. You know. um, nothing you could possibly imagine that would be in any way nice. So as a result, you have to sort of balance between the need to constantly say, yes, yes, we are technologically progressing, things are getting shinier and newer and better, and 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 subtly saying actually any real major change couldn't happen. And that's how you get, you know, like, look, there's a new iPhone. There's another new iPhone. There's another, you know, these tiny little incremental changes in order basically technologies of simulation. Is not working or having too much leisure time actually dangerous? Oh, um, it's having too much leisure time is dangerous if it's introduced to you suddenly and you have nothing else to do, right? Also, if you're extremely poor. <laughs> um, I think... Leisure time is is bad if it's in a context of great brutalization and in which most of the actual worthwhile things you could do with your leisure time are also cut off. And people, you know, I mean, obviously, if you think about a prison, um, if you're in a prison, well, they, they give out work as a reward. Even in places where you're not paid for it at all, and these are not altruistic people, they'd rather actually be working in the prison laundry than just sitting in their cell doing nothing. So I don't think anybody wants to do nothing. I think it's more a question of forced labor. You know, people don't like to do things when they know they don't really need to be done. Uh, there's this passage in Dostoevsky in his prison memoirs, because, you know, he's put in... Siberia at one point. And he says, you know, if you want to totally destroy someone psychologically, 
The worst torture you could possibly do would be to make up a completely meaningless job and have him know it's meaningless and have him do it all the time anyway. So, you know, take a pitcher of water, you know, <laughs> pour it into the cistern until it's totally full then empty it again, then fill it again and just have them do that all day. They'll go insane. <laughs> um, if they know the job is completely meaningless and pointless, you know, even the most hardened criminal will just can't take it. It'll just <laughs> be reduced to psychological jelly. And I, in a way, you know, that's, that's, the situation a lot of us are in. Um, if the only choice is between doing absolutely nothing, which drives you crazy, and doing um, you know utterly meaningless work that keeps you busy constantly, which drives you even more crazy, you know that's a terrible version of the society. But you know, so so maybe the it's not leisure so much as the meaningfulness of either the work or the lack of it that we're really talking about. Is there a sense that something more sinister is going on? Is that we're being kept? busy so that we don't ask bigger questions. Well, I do think that's the case. I mean, if you look at a lot of um, the economic changes that have happened since the 80s, um, they're not that economically efficient. Um, look at precarious labor. You know, the flexibility is the term, meaning more flexible workforce. And what, what flexibility means if you're on the receiving end of flexibility is you have no life security. You don't know where you're going to be next year. You don't know if you're going to have a job or lose it. It makes it very difficult to plan. Um, this does not make for a more efficient workforce. I mean, all studies show that people who have no job security don't work as well. They're not as dedicated. They're, they're don't innovate or create. They just do what they're told and worry a lot, um, or, or resentful or sabotage things. Um, it, you know, if you want to, if you want an efficient workforce, you give them a level of security and treat them fairly nicely. You know, um, on the other hand, precarious labor is really good at creating a docile labor force because you know it's really hard to join a union. It's really hard to um, eat plan. Uh, Pierre Bourdieu did a whole study where he showed that people who are in precarious jobs don't get involved in political parties. They don't get involved in neighborhood groups because you don't know where you're going to be or what you're going to be doing. So if they were intentionally coming up with a plan to depoliticize labor, that would be the way to do it. Now, are they intentionally doing it? It's very hard to say. Sometimes people sort of on the upper echelons where they're running things do actually say things like that. Alan Greenspan is always a good source on that because occasionally he'd say what he was thinking. And um, I remember he once actually said, well, we think it's really important to have lots of people in debt, he said, because um, it brings down wages. Because if people are in debt, they can't go on strike. Uh, because they have mortgage payments to make. And if they can't go on strike, wages go down. And if wages go down, that's anti-inflationary. Um, so, so, you know, he would occasionally say stuff like that. Uh, we need to get more people employed. It doesn't matter whether the jobs do anything or not. Um, and um, so in his case, and people like that, occasionally they will say things like that. Yeah, it's better to keep them off the streets. It doesn't matter whether um, they're doing anything important or not. Um, so, but I think there's also a confluence. Um, you know, on the one hand, people on the right are saying, keep them off the streets. Uh, work is good, even if it doesn't do anything on sort of puritanical grounds. People on the left are like, you know, when they march, what are they always saying? Jobs, more money for jobs, jobs, jobs. They're not saying we want jobs that actually do something that's necessary to do. <laughs> So it's almost as if like the two, one thing that both sides agree on is like, let's have more and more labor, whether or not it's actually necessary. 
So what's the answer? How do we move towards this utopian future where we work less? Is it the overthrow of this economic system? Well, that's what I'd like to see personally. Um, I mean, I think this economic system clearly has come to its limits. What we have is we had a welfare state system, which is based on the premise of full employment, which was Oh, it seemed achievable and kind of was achievable in the 50s or late 40s, early 50s, through the 50s and 60s to a large degree. Um, but the nature of the economy has changed. It was also based on extremely high growth rates. I mean, if we make people say, oh, why don't we go back to Keynesianism? You know, well, if we went back to the kind of growth rates that they had in the 60s, um, we'd destroy the planet in five years. You know, we just can't do that anymore. We have a situation where you've found change where you have technology, meaning there's more and more potential productivity, less and less demand for labor and real ecological problems. So sometimes it seems to me that the entire discipline of economics is, is founded around answering the wrong questions. I mean, there were perfectly appropriate questions in 1880 or even 1935, but they're not the questions we need to ask now. You know, economics is based on saying, how do you, what is the optimal way to allocate scarce resources to maximize productivity and have a reasonable level of distribution of the goods across the population? Well, nowadays, we have a totally different problem, which is, you know, how to allocate like increasingly unnecessary labor in a fair way and make sure that there, um, in, you know, that the rapid increase of technology doesn't create a tiny elite and destroy the planet. You know, it's a different problem. So you need different tools, I think. Um, whether you want to call the system capitalism or not, I personally wouldn't. Um, I think that I'm almost certain that whatever exists in 20 or 30 years will be something that probably shouldn't be called capitalism. Um, that doesn't mean it'll be some necessarily be better, right? It could be something even more horrible, in my opinion. You know, it could be something, some kind of techno-fascism. It could be almost anything. Um, so this is why I think it's so silly for people to say, oh, don't dream about something that would be better than capitalism. Well, you know, if we don't dream about something that's better than capitalism, we're going to end up with something that's worse than capitalism because we're not going to have capitalism. Um, so I think it's very important to do at this point in history. Um, but, you know, it's also possible that when future historians write about this time, they'll say the capitalism ended in, you know, 1995. <laughs> That's why historians talk. You don't know what new system you're in until you're in it about 50 years, you know. So who knows? Maybe we're not in capitalism, we're in something else. Despite David Graeber's love of science fiction and his fascination with its technology, dog walking robots and teleportation, his vision of the future of work was rooted in human relations and community. And the hundreds of tributes written about David after his death attest to the value he placed on both of these in his own life. If this is about the future of work, I think that we need to destroy the boundaries between what we consider work, play, and human relations. I think that, you know, the solution to this problem, I said, you know, we used to have this very masculine, Promethean idea of productivity, of uh, production as, as we're value creating work. And then they went to this different idea of values coming from entrepreneurs. I think we need to go back to a labor theory of value, but we need to start from caring. Um, that, you know, I mean, even if you're building a bridge, you build a bridge because you care that people can get across the river. I mean, all real work is actually an extension of carrying labor in some way. I think, you know, I come from a working class background. I mean, and, and it's a very interesting coming from a working class background because, 
you know, you, you're always in this double bind. You're being told that like work is a value in itself and therefore you're virtuous insofar as you work. But you don't really want to work when you have to. Um, but you do feel that work is virtuous insofar as it actually helps people. You know? So there is already in there this kind of notion that work is an extension of caring and, and caregiving. I, I've actually written that one reason why it's so easy to like put austerity and all of these very uh, destructive economic um, projects, which are, you know, really hurt uh, communities, uh, working class communities, poor people's communities, is because people have this sort of altruistic sense of caring for their communities, which, you know, there was once a time where you could direct that towards class solidarity, communal solidarity toward the working class. And back in those days, we used to talk about social progress. Um, now it's been redirected into this sort of abstract notion of the nation or, um, political system or into racial racialized in horrible ways. And but it's still there, that notion of of I mean even psychological studies have, have found this to be the case. The richer you are, the less good you are at understanding how people around you feel and um and, and think. You know, the, the the poorer you are, the more you sort of pick up on other people because you have to. But but also because you're used to like being in the sort of communal environment. And um and and I think that you need to think of the, re, redefine the working classes as the caring classes, because in a way, mo, yeah, that's what they are. Even 1850, you know, most working class people weren't factory workers. First of all, most working class people were women, because 51% of the population is women. And, um, you know, but even the men, as I say, you know, like there are a lot more people involved in taking care of things and people than in actually making them. Um, and, and, you know, let's start from there. If we start from there and, and we get rid of this notion that, you know, productivity can be measured and is the thing which is most important, um, and, and go back to a notion of, of caring as our primary value, I think that we can start reimagining what the economy is like. A lot of people are involved in things like citizens' basic income. I've been talking about that. Um, a lot of my friends started in wages for housework in the 80s. And, you know, the idea of wages for housework was kind of a provocation. It was a joke. They didn't really expect to get paid for it. But it was a way of pointing out, you know, the contradictions. Like, if we're creating half the value, how come we don't get the money? Um, and they started thinking about, well, what do we want? What would we want? And they thought, well, why not? What about freedom? What about the idea that people should be free to decide for themselves how they want to contribute to the world? Because as I pointed out, people don't really just want to sit there and do nothing. Um, you know, left to their own devices, most, you know, a few will. Um, but most will go out there and, and decide for themselves how they want to contribute. And chances are they'll have a better idea of what they're good at and what they can contribute to the world than in the job market, which as it now exists is putting 39% of all people in jobs they think are totally meaningless and don't do anything. So, I mean, you can't do much worse than we're doing already. <laughs> so if we just you know, give people like a basic income, say, or everybody gets 30,000 pounds after that, it's up to you. Well, I mean, they'll figure out something to do, which will probably be a better decision than we could make if we were making it for them. After the end of the interview, David stayed to chat with us for 15 minutes. That was when New Yorker David told us about his trip to Devon, a moment of levity to close with. Devon, I was in Devon like the other day for some Schumacher Institute or something. I, I, so, so Devon is, and, and they just Devon's seem to be nice. Devon's nice. Cornwall's I, lovely if you uh, like it a bit more yeah. rugged. I, I've heard Cornwall was good things too. The funny thing about Devon was like the accents were so familiar. I was, was talking to someone there 
And I was talking about making a joke about getting into the wrong side of the car because I'm used to American cars. And she was like, oh, have you spent much time in America? And then I noticed that people's accents were kind of similar to America. Yeah. And then I realized that Plymouth was the next town yeah. over. And it's like, yeah. oh, that's where American accents come yeah. from. Oh, it's Devon. Tell us what you think using the hashtag LSEIQ. This episode of LSEIQ was produced by Oliver Johnson and me, Sue Windybank. Want to explore more of David Graeber's work? This episode was based in part on the following research. The Utopia of Rules on Technology, Stupidity and the Secret Joys of Bureaucracy, published by Melville House. And On the Phenomenon of Bullshit Jobs, a work rant, originally an essay for Strike magazine, which David went on to develop into the book Bullshit Jobs, a Theory, published by Alan Lane. Join us next time when we ask... How can we end child poverty in the UK? For more episodes of this podcast and to subscribe, please visit lse.ac.uk forward slash IQ or search for LSEIQ on your favourite podcast app. And please consider leaving us a review as this makes the podcast easier for new listeners to discover.